Hello and welcome to This Week I Learned, your audio guide to the most surprising discoveries and fascinating studies of the week. I'm your host, Lauren Hansen. This week I learned some good news for you smartphone addicts out there. There may finally be one way that you can look at your phone at night without compromising your sleep. Science has been pretty clear on this point. Scrolling through your phone before bed is a terrible idea. Research is increasingly showing that using smartphones and computers close to bedtime can not only make it harder for us to fall asleep, it can hurt the quality of the sleep we're getting. It's the blue light on that tiny screen that is mostly to blame. It messes with your circadian rhythm, making you mentally alert and lowering your level of melatonin, that very helpful hormone that lets you get drowsy and controls your sleep-wake cycle. But bad habits can be hard to break. Luckily, tech companies have been trying to help us out iPhone and Android phones, among many others, have built a night mode, which dims the screen to a rusty yellow color. If you weren't aware of this already, on the iPhone, for example, if you go into your settings and display and brightness and then click into night mode, you can adjust the color temperature from less warm to more warm, and you can even schedule it to go on each night. The most extreme end of the warmth scale is admittedly a little weird to read on. It's kind of a muddy orange tint, but you do get used to it. And this is going to soak up the most of that blue light, as much as 58%. And this is good, but it also means you're still getting 42% of the stimulating bad stuff. So a recent study wanted to take the blue light blocking a step further. Recruiting just 22, 20-somethings, researchers had the volunteers wear a watch that would track all sorts of things like their light exposure, sleep quality, and sleep duration. Then the following week, still wearing the watch, the volunteers had to wear these rather massive, bulky plastic glasses. They kind of look like something a welder or carpenter might wear, but they're tinted and so can block short wavelengths. Now, in the spectrum of light that we can see from violet to red, violet, indigo, and blue light have the shortest wavelengths, measured at under 475 nanometers. But among those three, our eyes are the most sensitive to blue light. And these glasses almost totally eliminate that short wave blue light, absorbing approximately 99% of short wavelengths under 540 nanometers. 99%! And being able to block nearly all of your phone's blue light, well, it apparently does wonders for your sleep. Not only were the volunteers' sleep patterns and sleep quality undisturbed, they actually had improved sleep quality after wearing the glasses. Researchers found that levels of melatonin actually got a boost, and the volunteers fell asleep faster, slept better, and slept longer than normal. So if you just can't break that nightly iPhone habit, get yourself a pair of short wavelength blocking safety glasses and get some sleep already. This week I learned that talking to yourself in the third person can instantly relieve stress. Jimmy's new in town. Jimmy uh, doesn't really know anyone. Oh, well, I'd like to get to know. Jimmy would like to get to know you. (sighs) 
Unless you're Jimmy, it may feel unnatural to speak to yourself in the third person, but researchers at Michigan State University and the University of Michigan found that it can be just the trick to control your emotions during stressful times. To test the idea, researchers hooked volunteers up to brain scanning equipment. Then they had the group view neutral images as well as disturbing images. And then the volunteers had to react to those images in both the first and third person. And what researchers found was that when volunteers reacted to an image of, say, a man pointing a gun at them, by speaking to themselves in the third person, their emotional brain activity decreased within one second. In another experiment, volunteers had to reflect on painful experiences from their past using first and third person language. And researchers here too found that when they used the third person self-talk, there was less activity in the part of the brain that usually lights up when diving down a dark memory lane. And this, researchers say, shows how the third person self-talk helps regulate emotion. Now, there are other simple tools that you can use to calm yourself down, things like mindfulness and thinking on the bright side. But researchers found that the third-person self-talk required considerably less thought and effort than those other mental tools. By talking to yourself in this way, why is Lauren so stressed? Lauren wants to strangle the collective MTA, and that's totally fair, Lauren, because Lauren's commute is terrible. But look at all the reading Lauren is getting done. Good job, Lauren. It helps you gain a tiny bit of psychological distance from your experiences so that you can better regulate your emotions, which is just what Lauren's gonna need to do on her subway ride home. George is getting upset! This week I learned that even babies can tell who's boss. You might have noticed in life that there's a social hierarchy with the confident, the charismatic, the natural born leaders perpetually at the top of the food chain. These socially dominant types tend to accomplish more, earn more, and just generally get more stuff from life. Sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, scientists from the University of Washington think that this might be because these links between dominance and reward are present in the very early stages of human development. In the study, researchers had a fairly large group of toddlers, about 17 months old, watch a series of short videos of puppets in simple social situations. As the babies watched, researchers evaluated their reactions. Of course, baby reactions aren't quite like adults. They can't clearly communicate their feelings, even if they do have a few words under their belt. So researchers used a common metric for babies called looking time. Babies will look longer at things that they find unexpected, and this is actually something that adults do too. You know, like when you can't tear your eyes away from a magic trick, or maybe that's just me. (laughs) Babies will also linger on an event that seems new to them. So the first video the babies watched established which puppet was the dominant one. A puppet with a blue shirt and brown hair and a puppet with a red shirt and yellow hair both approach the same chair and kind of seem to fight over it until the blue puppet sits down. The subsequent videos presented a few different narratives between the dominant and the weaker puppet. In one narrative, the blue-shirted dominant puppet gets more Legos, and in another video, they get the same amount. There. All gone. 
In another set of videos, it's the red-shirted, less dominant puppet that gets more Legos. And in the following video, the puppets also, again, get the same amount. And researchers found the babies to be bewildered by the video where the weaker puppet gets more Legos. They looked an average of seven seconds longer at that video than any other. And this, researchers say, indicates that rewarding the weak was an unexpected outcome for the babies. The lingering gaze suggests that their brains were continuing to process the information presented to them on screen. And this shows that our perceptions of social status and our expectations about social dominance, you know, our ability to tell who's really boss here, well, they're ingrained at a very young age. Pruy, I have a question. Who's the boss? Him. Oh, Daddy's <laughs> the boss. And Pruy, let's yeah. try this again. Pruy, who's the boss? Mama. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this week I learned the thrilling story of the time the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre and how this theft helped skyrocket Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece to unparalleled fame. The year was 1911, and an Italian handyman by the name of Vincenzo Perugia had been hired by the Louvre to put some of the museum's art under glass. Being in this massive art museum, Perugia found himself, for all the wrong reasons, in awe of the work he saw. Here's the writer Joe Medeiros explaining Perugia's mindset for the Smithsonian Channel. As he was walking around, he would notice all this great Italian artwork. And he kind of wondered, where did it come from? He heard some stories, he read some things, and he put two and two together and, and kind of got five out of it. <laughs> he got into his head that he was going to return a masterpiece to Italy, where he thought it belonged. And the one that he chose was the Mona Lisa. The thing is, Perugia wasn't some kind of skilled con artist or even a practiced thief. He just had an idea and kind of impulsively acted upon it. Perugia entered the Louvre along with hordes of visitors on Sunday, August 20th, 1911. Sunday was the museum's busiest day, so it would have been easy for the Italian to get lost in a crowd, stroll into a first-floor gallery room near closing, and slip into a small storage closet where he stayed the night. On Monday, the museum would have been closed, so around 7.30 in the morning, after the maintenance director did his rounds, Perugia emerged. Wearing a white artist smock, which is typically what the maintenance staff would have worn, he walked over to the Mona Lisa, lifted the painting down from its four hooks, and walked away. It's rather surprising, I know, considering that the Mona Lisa today is trapped behind bulletproof glass. But back in 1911, not only was theft not really a big concern for the Louvre, but the Mona Lisa wasn't even the museum's most prized possession. The piece wasn't that well known beyond the art world, and it wasn't even da Vinci's most popular piece at the time. By some accounts, it wasn't even the most popular painting in that gallery room. That's not to say that walking out with the masterpiece was easy. For one thing, between the frame, some internal support, and the glass casing, Mona Lisa weighed nearly 200 pounds. 
After lifting the piece from the wall, Perugia hid behind a stairwell and stripped the painting of its protective garments. But because Leonardo da Vinci painted the beguiling woman on wood instead of canvas, Perugia couldn't just roll it up, so he slipped it under his artist's smock and made for the exit. But when he got there, it was locked. He tried taking the doorknob off, but it still wouldn't budge. As luck would have it, one of the museum's plumbers walked by. Perugia said he couldn't get out because the doorknob was mysteriously missing, and the plumber, assuming the man in the white coat to be an employee, used his pliers to open the door. And out Perugia walked into that early August Parisian morning. The museum didn't even notice the piece was gone. The Louvre was going through the process of having its works photographed, so it wasn't unusual for a piece to go missing for a day or two. It wasn't until a full day later that a pushy local artist who liked to paint with Mona Lisa watching him made a guard ask the photographers when the painting would be returned. The photographers, of course, didn't have it. And so launched a massive worldwide search for the Mona Lisa. Headlines and images were splashed across newspapers all over the world. 60 detectives seek stolen Mona Lisa, French public indignant, declared one New York Times headline. In a time long before TV and social media, Mona Lisa's enchanting smile was getting the early 20th century viral treatment. She was everywhere. The French police hadn't a clue where the real one was, though. Everyone from Pablo Picasso to American tycoon J.P. Morgan to Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II was a suspect. Perugia, it seemed, had made a clean getaway. But now that the story had legs and Mona Lisa was a rather recognizable figure worldwide, he couldn't sell the damn thing. So he hid it in a false bottom of a trunk in his Paris boarding house for two years. In 1913, Perugia finally made a pass at selling the Mona Lisa, but the French dealer was suspicious, and the Italian handyman turned world surprise greatest art thief was picked up by the police. Perugia's trial was a spectacle. The Italian was an emotional showman in court, openly arguing with his lawyer and the prosecutor spewing conflicting stories and motivations. But in Italy, Perugia was a patriotic hero. During the long trial process, he was sent love letters, bottles of wine, and homemade cakes while in jail. By the end of the trial, Perugia was ruled intellectually deficient, and he got a reduced sentence of just seven months. And because he'd already spent eight months in jail during the trial, he was released. Thanks to Perugia, the Mona Lisa became the most valuable artwork in the world, now drawing more than six million visitors a year to take in her enigmatic expression. As for Perugia, well, his story is much less glamorous. After serving in the Italian army during World War I, Perugia married, had one daughter, and returned to France, where he continued to work as a painter and decorator, under a different name, until his death not too long later in 1925. 
And that does it for this episode of This Week I Learned. Look out for new episodes every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to read more about any of the facts I've mentioned or get your hands on those blue blocker safety glasses I mentioned, you can find links at theweek.com slash podcasts, where you'll also find our 7-Minute Opinion and 7-Minute Explainer series. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, we'd like to offer you four risk-free issues of The Week magazine. To get started, visit theweek.com slash for free. I'm Lauren Hansen, and thanks so much for listening.